I would invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 1. We'll be looking this morning at verses 19 through 34. Let's go to the Lord in prayer before reading His Word. Father, we thank You for this Word of truth that You have given to us. What delight it is to gather week after week throughout this earthly life that You and Your providence have granted to us. And to hear now from Your divine truth the the witness that You have borne to Yourself Uh, the witness of our Savior, that He is the one who came in flesh to bear our sins upon the cross and to redeem us from our iniquity. May we see here in this passage this morning our need, our great need, and the finished work of the Savior in whose name we pray. Amen. John 1, beginning in verse 19. And this is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, No. So they said to him, Who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. And they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, Then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ nor Elijah nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water. But among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit." And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. As we consider this portion of John's gospel narrative this morning, it's important, I think, for us to keep in mind why John wrote. John is not interested in recording historical events for history's sake alone. He is writing with a purpose. The purpose for which he tells us at the end of this book in chapter 20, verse 31 where he writes, These are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. And so everything that John writes is to press the reader to believe that Jesus is the Son of God, and that by believing in His substitutionary work for you, you might have life in His name. And one of the ways that John presses the reader to believe that Jesus is the Son of God is through witness-bearing. It's a term that occurs some 47 times in noun or verb form throughout John's gospel. John himself witnesses these things firsthand as he gives testimony to what he observed. 
John records other witness bearers such as Nicodemus, the woman at the well, the man born blind. And here in chapter 1, John the Baptist who gives witness that Jesus is the Savior. Jesus' own words of power and authority, his miraculous signs, the voice of the Father from on high confirming that this is his anointed, the ministry of the Holy Spirit, all of these together bear witness to the person and work of Christ Jesus. Now, why is this so important for our reading today of this text? Why is this so important when we come to the Gospel of John? Well, in John's day and in our own, people seek to deny Jesus' identity. They try to make him to be something other than who he claims to be. He never claimed to be a good person, but he claimed to be God in flesh. He never claimed to be a great leader and a moral teacher, but he claimed to be a perfect substitute for sinners. Whatever you might think of Jesus, you simply cannot deny his significance in world history. And you cannot ignore the identity that he claims for himself. You see, in Hebrew thinking, witness bearing was a very significant and a very weighty thing not to be taken lightly. You know, envision an ancient courtroom scene in which one is put on trial. There is no video evidence from cameras strategically placed around an ancient Near Eastern village that can bear witness to an event. The person who might be accused, the person who might need to claim his innocence in a court of law depended upon the witness of another. We read in Deuteronomy 19, a single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed. Only on the evidence of two or three witnesses shall a charge be established. Clearly, Jesus has met that criteria from Deuteronomy 19, as John builds his case chapter after chapter, bearing witness to the identity of Jesus of Nazareth. Deuteronomy 19 goes on to talk about the punishment for false witness bearing, that the one who deceives by false witness commits a great evil and will be cut off from his people. Proverbs 19 verse 5 reads that a false witness will not go unpunished, And he who breathes out lies will not escape. And so in biblical thinking, there are only two options here. Either listen to John as he records the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, all bearing witness to the identity of Jesus, believe in the authoritative witness of God's very own word, or condemn Jesus as a liar and believe nothing that he says. There is no third option. There is no option of, well, I'll believe in the spiritual, mystical presence of Christ in my life. There is no, I'll believe part of what Jesus says, but I'll discard other things that don't fit with my modern understanding. The only option before you is either listen and believe or reject outright. And John's meticulous record of witness-bearing leads to great comfort for God's people. It gives us great assurance in the finished work of our Savior. But to the skeptic, to the one who may not believe, John would say, listen. Listen to these words that have stood the test of time. Consider the person and work of Jesus. Read this gospel and consider the witness of the triune God. 
And so as we consider John the Baptist and his role as witness bearer, keeping in mind the weight and the gravity of witness bearing, we need to have a bit of background into the historical setting and the time in which John lived. And so our first point this morning, if you will, is this, historical background. Historical background to John's witness bearing. Now the Jews, of course, were God's chosen people. They were the ones who had received the word of the Lord from the prophets, through the prophets. But at this point in history, it has been 400 years since a prophet walked among them. 400 years since the word of God last came to them. 400 years since Malachi, the last prophet, wrote his divinely inspired words. And so we're talking generation after generation Hundreds of years as the people of God are studying his word of old, looking for the fulfillment of those promises and longing for God to speak to them again. They were wondering when God would speak to them again. Some are wondering if he will ever speak to them again. When will he fulfill his promises and provide that promised deliverer, that coming Messiah? But suddenly a voice appears in the desert We read in verse 28 that this happens in Bethany on the other side of the Jordan, which would have been in the high desert area. And it's here in the desert that John is really functioning as a prophet, proclaiming this message of sin, repentance, and the need for cleansing. In this 400-year gap, we come to John, who is the final Old Testament prophet. It's not surprising that the people would gravitate toward John. It's not surprising that they would think that he is the long-awaited deliverer. Perhaps he is the anointed of God. The heavens have been closed for such a long period of time. And now, suddenly, someone is teaching in a prophetic and authoritative manner. We read in Mark's gospel account that all of Judea and Samaria were going out to John, confessing their sins and being baptized. And so this was no small event. This was not something that merely caught the attention of a few. This was very significant, and this was something that was widespread in the land of Judea. Now, that's a bit of background to John as he dramatically comes onto the scene, into this period of silence, speaking this message of repentance. Second, let's consider how John defends his witness. John is creating such a commotion that the religious leaders send a delegation to question John. We read in verse 19 that this delegation is made up of priests and Levites sent by the Jews. In verse 24, we read that among them are representatives who have been sent by the Pharisees. So it's a delegation representing the religious authorities sent out into the desert to find out John's identity and to bring a report back to them. People are flocking out to the desert. People are talking. People are being influenced. Could this be the long-awaited voice of God? And so they ask John very generally in verse 19, Who are you? Now that seems like an innocent question enough. Perhaps their motive is to simply guard the people that they are charged with shepherding. Perhaps their motive is more self-serving, to protect their own positions of authority over the people and a desire to maintain the status quo. As much as we don't like the Romans, we don't want to disrupt the relationship that we have with them, a relationship in which we have relative freedom to worship. As religious leaders, they should have recognized what was going on. 
if they themselves were paying attention to the promises of God's word, if they were paying attention to John's witness, they would get it. But instead, they aren't listening. They don't get John's identity. And because they are not listening, they fail to get Jesus' identity as well when he comes onto the scene. You see, John's job, very simply, is to point to Jesus. We'll see this more in a minute. But a great summary of John's role can be seen in chapter 3, verse 30, in which John confesses, He, Jesus, must increase, but I must decrease. And really what John is doing throughout this conversation with the religious leaders is pointing away from himself in order to exalt and uplift and affirm Jesus as Messiah. There was a Bible translator who was living among indigenous people trying to think of how to translate this role of John the Baptist in a way that they would understand, but he was struggling to find the right words to convey the role of John. After living among them for some time, he was invited to attend a tribal ceremony in which the chief, who was becoming advanced in age, handed off the scepter of authority to his son and then symbolically moved back with the other men of the village while his son was exalted to this new position of authority. And the Bible translator thought to himself, this is it. This is what John is doing in bearing witness to another. And let's look at how John does this. Let's look at how John points away from himself and seeks to really elevate Jesus, the Messiah. John's first reply in verse 20 is quite interesting. Notice that John tells them, first of all, who he is not. Now, if someone came to you and they said, who are you? You would probably reply by giving them your name, where you were born, something about your family background, what you do in life, where you work, where you go to school. For us, there are 7 billion people in the world, and so if you were to reply, well, this is who I'm not, there are 7 billion possible answers that you could give. But that really doesn't say a lot about who you are, does it? But John knows what the religious leaders are after. He knows that they think he may be the long-awaited Messiah, the long-awaited deliverer from God. And so he states plainly and clearly that he is not the Messiah. You see, in the denial of who he is, you see, it's a denial of their perception of his identity. And notice also that John, as he writes, John the Apostle now, notice how he captures how emphatic John the Baptist is about this. He confessed and did not deny, but confessed. And so John's denial that he is not the Christ is actually a confession about another, an emphatic confession, bearing witness about the greatness of another. Now, this tells us a great deal about John's zeal in this role of forerunner of the Lord Jesus. Even his denial is a confession. Even his denial is bearing witness about the one who is coming. But this is not enough for them. They are not satisfied. They have been sent by this delegation all the way out into the desert, and they have to return with some sort of an answer. You are not the Christ. We've got that. But who are you? And so they ask, are you Elijah? Now, why would they ask if he is Elijah? That might seem like a strange question to us. Well, go to the book of Malachi, chapter 4. Go to the left to Matthew and then just... Keep going a couple of pages and you'll find there Malachi. Malachi 
Again, 400 years earlier, this is the last thing that they heard from a prophet of God. Verses 5 and 6 of chapter 4. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Now, if this is the last thing that you heard, then the next thing that you would expect would be a fulfillment of this promise. And so if John is proclaiming this message of repentance, and there is evidence that people are listening and people are being baptized by him, then perhaps this is Elijah. What was so unique about Elijah? We remember in 2 Kings chapter 2 that he did not experience death. And so if he never died... And if Malachi prophesies of the voice of Elijah, then there's this expectation that he would one day return in flesh. Now, the prophet Elijah lived in the days of King Ahab. And Elijah carried a message of judgment. This is where John's message is similar to that of Elijah. A message of coming judgment and the need for repentance. So perhaps this is Elijah. So what's the answer? Is John Elijah? Well, in answering their perception, John says that he is not. He is not the original, literal Elijah who was returned in flesh. But in Matthew chapter 11, in speaking of John the Baptist, Jesus himself says, John is Elijah who is to come. So John is an Elijah figure, you see, who is paving the way for the Lord Jesus. John is fulfilling Malachi 4 verse 5, but not the way that the religious leaders thought. And we have to keep in mind, again, that John's goal here is to point away from himself to the Lord Jesus. This is why any question that is posed to him, he responds by pointing to the coming Messiah. So then they go on and they ask, well, then are you the prophet? Well, why ask if he is the prophet? Well, there's another passage in the Old Testament in Deuteronomy chapter 18 that creates this expectation. In Deuteronomy 18, we read in verse 15, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. Just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly, when you said, Let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God, or see this great fire any more, lest I die. And the Lord said to me, They are right in what they have spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers. And I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to my words, that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. So this text you see in Deuteronomy chapter 18 creates this expectation, this belief that a prophet like Moses would be raised up. And he will be the final prophet. And this final prophet, when he comes, will signify something very significant. So is John the prophet? Is he the one that is spoken of here in Deuteronomy 18? Well, he is not the prophet. That is the Lord Jesus. But he is a prophet. Again, in Matthew chapter 11, in that same passage where Jesus affirms that John is Elijah, he also affirms that John is a prophet. But again, John denies that he is the prophet because he doesn't want to draw attention to himself, but to the one who is coming. 
So now they're happy, right? Now they're satisfied. You're not Messiah, you're not Elijah, you're not the prophet. Well, no, not quite. Verse 22, who are you? We need an answer. You can sense their irritation here, can't you? Do you know who we are? Do you recognize our credentials and our position of authority? We have the right to receive a satisfactory answer from you, and we will not leave until we get it. This leads us to our third point, that John not only defends his witness, but he goes on to positively assert his witness. He declares himself to be a witness. It's his witness declaration. In verse 23, John gives them some sort of an answer here more positively. He has said, first of all, who he isn't. I'm not the Messiah. I'm not Elijah. I'm not the prophet. If you really want to know who I am, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord. Well, what does he mean here? Well, John is quoting from Isaiah chapter 40, the passage that we read from earlier this morning. Now, Isaiah chapter 40 is very strategically placed within the book of Isaiah. As Isaiah has been writing, Israel in the north has already been overrun by the nation of Assyria and been destroyed. And the Lord has just promised in Isaiah chapter 39 that because of King Hezekiah's pride, Judah in the south will fall to Babylon. Now that word in Isaiah chapter 39, that word of the Lord is a tremendous blow to the people. If you were to sort of chart out on a timeline the high points and the low points for the nation of Israel, Isaiah 39 is one of the lowest points for God's people. You will be plundered, and your sons will be made eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. But then you turn to the next chapter, chapter 40, and there are these dramatic words of comfort. The people will receive pardon, forgiveness, and grace from the Lord as they return from captivity to receive the promise of God fulfilled. In verses 3 through 5, the image here is one of this royal, kingly procession. There is a messenger who precedes the procession of the king, telling them that the king is coming, laying a level path by proclaiming this message of hope and mercy. Do all that you can to prepare yourself for the king and for the glory of the Lord to be made manifest. And this is the text that John uses to refer to his own ministry. Prepare the way for the coming one by repenting of sins. Repenting of sins that led to God's judgment of exile. Very simply, John says, I am this one. I am this ambassador. I am this messenger of the great king. I am telling you, Get ready for his arrival. I am leveling out the way, if you will, for the glory of the Lord is going to be revealed. And so John understands his role. Everything about his existence is to point to the Messiah, to the great king. John Calvin illustrates it something like this. He says, imagine two ambassadors coming from a faraway land with a very important message something earth-shattering in terms of significance. The first ambassador comes simply to wake people up, to call them to attention, to tell them that something unbelievable is going to happen. The first ambassador just paves the way, while it's the second who carries the message of substance. He is the one who brings the conclusion. 
Of course, the second is more important. He is the one you are going to listen to. He is the one you are going to remember. John understands his role in pointing to another who is about to come onto the scene. If you want to think of an application of this to your own life, think of it like this. If you are in the Lord Jesus, you are an ambassador of Christ. We read as much in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 20 and 21. And really, everything about you ought to point to another who is much greater and more important than you are. And we don't like to think like that because we like to think very highly of ourselves. But if you claim to be in Christ Jesus, then everything about you is to be about representing Christ. And so the calling for John is really the same calling for you. You must decrease that he might increase. You are always a representative of the great king. In your conversations with one another, the content of your words, the things that you say, and the things that you refrain from saying, and the way in which you say them are all to be done as an ambassador of Christ Jesus. In your homes, you are to conduct yourself in such a way that honors the Lord, seeking to serve one another because your identity as an ambassador trumps all other identities. Your identity as an ambassador trumps all other desires that you might have. You are never not an ambassador. You are always representing Christ and should always be considering how you might glorify him in all that you do. How you might live for his greatness. How you might exalt him and not yourself. If you learn anything from John's witness bearing, it is his resolve to fulfill his role of pointing to the coming Messiah. It is an all-consuming focus for him. What about for us? Well, back to the religious leaders in their conversation with John. They're still not satisfied. But they're not really listening to what John is saying. They're not really considering the importance of what he is telling them. And so now they shift gears and focus upon his activity. Why are you baptizing? If you are not the Christ, if you're not Elijah, if you're not the prophet, then what are you doing out here baptizing people? What gives you authority? Elijah had authority. The prophets have authority. What gives you the right to baptize? And again, their objection comes from Scripture. In Ezekiel chapter 36, God says, I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you. You see, if John's message is a message of repentance and the need for cleansing, then they're asking him, what gives you the right to presume that you are fulfilling these words of Ezekiel chapter 36? We have to understand a few things here about John's baptism. When we baptize in the church, we baptize because it is a sign of covenant inclusion. Baptism is a sacrament that Jesus gave to the church. Jesus did not create the ritual of baptism. It was a ritual that was already in existence. But rather, he set it apart and gave it something new in terms of its significance. John's baptism is different because Jesus has not yet given the sign of baptism as a sacrament of covenant inclusion. 
And just to simplify, we could say that John's baptism belongs in the Old Testament as part of the Old Testament law. This is why Jesus is baptized by John in fulfillment of all Old Testament regulations, while the baptism of Jesus belongs to the church in the New Covenant community. Now, for the Hebrews of old, if someone came from another nation and they wanted to be included in the covenant promises of God, they were a proselyte, a convert to Judaism. If someone wanted to be numbered among them, they had to do three things. First, they had to make a public confession of what they believed. Second, if male, they would have to undergo circumcision. And third, male or female, they would be baptized signifying their need for cleansing because they are acknowledging that they are unclean. This is a way for the Jewish people to say, you can be part of us, but you need to acknowledge your uncleanliness. We are God's special people, but you are unclean, and so you need to be baptized. And baptism in this way was usually self-administered, meaning that the person would pour water upon him or herself. This is why the Pharisees are questioning John's authority because John is going further than this by telling the Jewish people that they too need to be baptized, that they too must repent of their rebellion and their defilement. This would have been very offensive to the Jewish leaders. But even in John's baptism, notice that he states that this is not an end in itself, but it is a sign pointing to another who will come with greater power and greater authority. He says later in verse 33, I only baptize with water, but one is coming, Jesus, upon whom the Spirit has descended and remains, but he has the power and authority to baptize with the Holy Spirit. Jesus can dispense the Holy Spirit upon whomever he wills because he himself is so filled with the Spirit and has inherent authority in the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Jesus is the one who truly fulfills Ezekiel chapter 36. He is the one who sends the Spirit to remove hearts of stone and replace them with hearts of flesh. In fact, this one who is coming, John says, is so great that I am unworthy to even stoop down and untie the sandals that he is wearing. As important as John is to pave the way for Jesus, he is really nothing compared to the greatness of the Lord. See, in ancient Near East, when someone would come into your home, not just any servant, but the lowliest of servants would engage in this menial task of untying the sandals of your guests. John is saying that the Messiah is coming, and he is so great and he is so majestic, and he is so wonderful that I am not even worthy to this most mundane and menial task of untying his sandal straps. Because of his greatness, I am the lowest of low. And then finally, in verse 29, Jesus comes onto the scene, and we read, fourthly, John's confession, John's verbal witness. Here is Jesus making his first entrance in John's gospel. In John's gospel narrative, we don't read of Jesus' birth. We don't read of Jesus' temptation in the wilderness. We don't read of his baptism by John, although John alludes to it here in this passage. But instead, John the author has been building the anticipation of the reader for Jesus to come onto the scene. Everything prior to this has been preparation for the coming Messiah. 
Now, when I say everything prior to this is preparation for Jesus to come onto the scene, I don't mean just verses 1 through 28, but I mean everything from Genesis chapter 3 to right now has been preparation for the intrusion of God coming in flesh in the Messiah. And as John bears witness in verse 29, he offers this amazing confession. Behold, the Lamb of God who has come to take away the sins of the world. In this statement, he encapsulates our preeminent problem and points to the one who offers the solution to our greatest dilemma. The problem that faces humanity, the problem that faces each one of us, is how can I, a sinner who has offended the holy God who has created me, how can I enter back into his presence since I was banished from the garden? And in this phrase, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, we have the answer. In Exodus chapter 12, the Lord God instituted the Passover in which a lamb was substituted in order to escape the judgment of death. In Isaiah 53, verse 7, we read, He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Christ is the Lamb of God. Christ is the Passover lamb sacrificed for us. He died as a substitute for our sins. Now, most likely, John the Baptist is not fully aware of the scope of what he is saying. But as a prophet, in prophetic fashion, he states clearly what Jesus has come to do. He has come to take away the sins of the world through his substitutionary death upon the cross. All the Old Testament sacrifices were temporary, shadows of this reality as he has now come. The only way to be made right with God is through this substitute who bears our sins. We read in Hebrews 9 verse 28, Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. As the Lamb of God, he takes away the sins of those whose faith is in him. In 1 Peter 2 Verse 24, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds we have been healed. As the Lamb of God, he takes the wrath of God upon himself. He, in his sacrifice, is this definitive, once for all, perfect atonement for sins. And if Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world... Well, this means that his sacrifice is sufficient. We are all guilty. We are all in need of his cleansing work. All men need it. It comes in Christ alone. And if it is for the sins of the world, then this means that no quantity of sin, that no gravity of sin is beyond his cleansing ability. As we conclude our time together this morning, let me just say this. If we are ever going to understand the significance of Jesus Christ, we have to have an accurate understanding of our own spiritual condition, an accurate understanding of our own need. This is what John is testifying about. It is a message of repentance, paving the way 
trying to help the people, Jew and Gentile alike, and us, to see that this is our need. We all have a need for cleansing, and the Lamb of God is the one who can provide the solution to our dilemma. And so if we somehow go through life, and if we assume that our greatest problem is acceptance, then we will do whatever we can to get the affection and attention of another. If we think that the purpose of life is about success and stability and comfort, then we will drive ourselves into the ground trying to pursue prosperity and get the adoration and envy of another. If we think our biggest problem in life is that we don't have the respect of others that we think we deserve, then we will control others and try to control them by fear, intimidation, and manipulation. However, if we understand that our greatest need is not out there somewhere with other people or other circumstances, but my greatest need is here within my own heart, my own need for cleansing, my own need to be delivered from my sin and rebellion, then we will see our need for the gospel in the person of the Lord Jesus. What do we really need? What do we really need to be saved from? We don't need to be saved from financial poverty. We don't need to be saved from social isolation. We don't need to be saved from an unpleasant relationship. We need to be saved from our sins. And Jesus alone provides for that salvation. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He alone is able to cleanse and forgive. The cross has not, nor will it ever, lose its effectiveness. May God be pleased to take the eternal truth of his word and write it upon the hearts of his people.